The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Mark in chapter 12, reading again verses 28 to 31, verses 28 to 31 in the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Mark. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Now, here is an incident in the life and ministry of our blessed Lord and Savior that is full of interest. It's a a story which tells us of how various types and kinds of people came to our Lord and put their questions to him. Here was a scribe who came, an able man, intelligent man, and a a religious man. And he comes like the others, and he puts his question to the Lord. Now, I'm interested in this this evening from one aspect and one standpoint only. And that is the way in which this man put his particular question. I'm not concerned to detain you with uh, going into the question of his wrong and his false motive. There is no doubt at all but that this man, like all the scribes, was animated by a more or less purely theoretical and academic interest in this question. It was their business, it was their profession in a sense, to be students of the law. And uh, they approached it, as the New Testament makes clear everywhere, in a very theoretical and academic manner. And they were constantly having these disputations with one another. And this was one of the favorite topics. Which is the greatest item in the law? There were about 613 or so items in the law, and this was the great bone of contention amongst them as to which was the greatest. And therefore there is no doubt that this man came very largely because of this theoretical academic interest which he had in this subject. No doubt he was also partly perhaps animated to a certain extent by a feeling of hostility with regard to our Lord. Before our Lord's appearance, these scribes and Pharisees were the teachers of the people, and they were respected and revered. Everybody looked up unto them, and everybody accepted all that they taught. But suddenly there appears this other teacher, not trained as a scribe nor as a Pharisee, a carpenter, an ordinary man. He begins to preach and to do so with authority, and the people crowded after him. Obviously, this was something that the Pharisees and scribes didn't like, and the whole record makes clear how they were moved by envy and jealousy, and by spite and malice, and their great concern was to trap, to trap our Lord in his teaching, to trip him up, to have something against him that they could report to the authorities, and thus get him into trouble. Now, There was no doubt that that was also there partly. In other words, he was out partly to tempt our Lord. But 
I say leaving all that on one side, that really doesn't matter. The thing that really matters, and to which I want to advert in particular this evening, is, as I say, the form of this man's question, the way he puts it, which is the first commandment of all, which is the most important, which is the central one, which is the pivotal one, which is the commandment that matters and counts above all others. Now, that's the question. And of course, we are still more interested in our Lord's answer to the question. If ever a man was taken by surprise, it was this clever scribe. We never anticipated that he was going to get the answer which he got. Our Lord, in his answer, surprises him, astonishes him, and corrects him and all the company to which he belonged. Our Lord gives, by way of answer, a perfect summary of the law, the law of God. The man comes and says, which is the first? Very well, says our Lord, I'll answer you. And what uh, is important for us and on which we, the thing on which we must concentrate tonight is this. The order in which our Lord gives his answer. He said, you ask a question, which is the first commandment of all. Jesus answered him and said, the first of all the commandments is this. Now notice, this is the first. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul, with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Then he goes on, and the second is like, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, here's the thing I want to hold before you. The order in which our Lord places these two things. Why am I calling attention to this? Well, I'm doing so, of course, because here our Lord deals with the great question that is being put today. The world is always putting these questions. It has its varying reasons again for doing so, exactly as we've seen in the case of the scribe. People have their different motives. But you know, there is a sense in which everybody is putting this same kind of question at the present time. And the question is this, what is wrong? What is really the cause of all our troubles? Now, they discuss the particular problems, and it's right that they should be doing so. But I think that more and more, the more thoughtful people are coming to ask this great question. What is wrong? Where do we start? It's obvious that there's something wrong and something terribly wrong, and that in spite of all the efforts of the statesmen and all others, uh, the things, instead of getting better, are going uh, from bad to worse. And people uh, say, now, what we want to know is this. What is the cause of trouble? What is the first principle in all these matters? And I want to try to show you this evening. Our Lord's answer is still the same. He answers the question, if the world turns to Christ and puts its question, he will still give the same answer. And I want to try to show you that as he surprised this scribe and the company at that time, he still surprises the modern men. His answer is always the unexpected. 
It's never what man thinks he's going to give. It's always the exact opposite. He surprises us. He confounds us. He corrects all our thinking. He shows how wrong it is. He cuts right across it. And he brings us invariably to the one and only thing that really matters. Now that's what he did with this scribe. And I want to show you how mankind, the intelligent portion of mankind in particular, is amazingly like this scribe still. And what our Lord shows, of course, is this, that we are not as clever as we think we are. And that one of our main troubles is that we are always in too much of a hurry. We want to have shortcuts. We want to do things in our way. And we don't understand why it can't be done. Our Lord shows us that, well, I say we're always in too much of a hurry. We're not as clever as we think we are. And he brings us to see that there's only one answer. It's his answer. We've got to believe him. We've got to take his answer as it is. And if we do so, we shall solve our problems because he always deals with that which is basic and fundamental. Now then, let me try and show you all this. Applying our Lord's teaching, it was true then in this particular form, it's equally true tonight as mankind facing this great problem because that is the meaning of this question. Which is the first and the greatest commandment of all? The teaching of the Pharisees and scribes was that Life is only made happy and joyous in this world as we keep the commandments of God. Therefore, the important thing is to know which is the, com the commandment, the first greatest commandment, and then all the others that follow. Well, now, the world is still, I say, facing that same question, that same problem tonight. What is the cause of our troubles? What have we got to do? What's the thing we should be concentrating on? Now, you can see how important this question is. The world is full of institutions, full of organizations, designed to deal with and to help and to solve the problem. I needn't worry you by mentioning them. Once we had a League of Nations and League of Nations Union, now we United Nations and all kinds of subsidiary and ancillary movements and organizations. The world has never been so busy in trying to get at the root cause of this problem and to put things right. But we're still in terrible trouble. Why? Well, now, I think that here we are given the answer. And I want to hold it before you. So I'll put it in the form of some three propositions. Here's the first. The world is as it is tonight, according to our Lord's teaching, because it has got its priorities wrong. Now, I'm speaking uh, in the modern idiom, am I not? Here's the great slogan of today. Get your priorities right. That's what the world believes in, so it tells us that it's no use unless you've got your priorities right. Well, of course, I agree entirely. The gospel agrees entirely. Our Lord agrees entirely. Indeed, I would say that you can sum up the whole message of the Bible in those terms. The Bible is a book which teaches us how to get our priorities right. Why? Well, because we are in trouble, because we've got our priorities wrong. That's the whole difficulty. And that's the very point, you see, that he deals with here. Now, I needn't waste your time. You're an intelligent people. Everybody must surely agree about the importance of this great principle of getting your priorities right. If a man doesn't get his priorities right in his business, he'll soon be bankrupt. You must start with certain fundamental things. You mustn't get lost in a number of details. Hold on to certain fundamental principles. 
There are certain things which are postulates. They're axiomatic even. You mustn't argue and debate about them. There's no need to. Put them down. Start with them. Never get away from them. Get your priorities right. Right in business. Right in professions. Right everywhere throughout the whole of life. Very well then. What's our Lord's teaching? Well, his teaching is this. That the whole trouble with the Pharisees and scribes was that they've got their priorities wrong. You see, this is the whole point of this man's question. He comes along and he says, uh, Master, he says, uh, which is the first commandment of all? You see, what he really meant was this. I, I say always that it's this. But then some of others say that it isn't, but it's that. And others say that it's that. And they were always arguing as to their priorities, which were the first and foremost and the greatest commandment of all. And this, of course, is the very charge which our Lord always brings against these people. He puts it very explicitly on another occasion to them in these words. You Pharisees, he says, you tithe mint and rue and anise and cumin, and forget the weightier matters of the law, love and justice and righteousness. Now there's a perfect instance, you see. That arose because of, on one occasion, he went into his house to have a meal with the men, and the men didn't wash his hands. And the Pharisees and scribes were amazed and astounded at this fancy of men sitting down to meet without first washing his hands. This is impossible. The men's outside the pale. Washing of hands, you see, is a priority. It's a, one of the first things. And our Lord turned upon them, and that is what he said. He said, you know, you are making priorities of tithing mint and rue and anise and cumin. These are the big things to you. You're always arguing about them. And that was the subject of their dispute, you see. Which of these things you put first? So the men's question is this. Now, which do you say of these various things that we should put first? And our Lord demolishes the men and his whole question and the whole mentality and outlook. He says, my dear men, the trouble with you is you haven't got your priorities right. You are interested in these little details here, there, and everywhere. And the big thing, the central thing, the whole purpose of the law, you've entirely forgotten. So he tells him which is the first and the greatest commandment and which is the second that follows from it. Now, I want to work this out with you in terms of the modern situation. For mankind is still guilty of precisely this old error of the Pharisees and the scribes. Men say and tell us that they're most concerned about getting their priorities right. And yet in this whole matter of life and living, of death and eternity, of making a world fit to live in, the whole trouble is that our priorities, I say, are all wrong. And mankind refuses to listen to the order indicated here by our blessed Lord and Savior. Let me show you this. They do this in three main ways. The first and perhaps, of course, the most cardinal error of the modern men, concerned about his world, anxious to put it right, who says, where do we go from here? Where do we start? What is the trouble? His first and cardinal error is this, that he always starts with man. Always. Starts with man. Now let me give you a quotation which will demonstrate this and in order to save time. I read a statement a few weeks back 
by a man in a very prominent position in a certain religious denomination. He was delivering a presidential address, and this is what he said, having made some kind of scoffing remarks against the old evangelicalism that was concerned about personal salvation. He said, the supreme question, the great problem in the world today is to discover how to reconcile man with man. That's it. And then, of course, he went on to say, he said, that's the problem in industry. Capital and labor, employer and trade union congress and government. How can you reconcile these things? People pulling at cross purposes. See it, he said, in the international sphere. Mentioned Vietnam. Talked about the color problem. South Africa, America, parts of London, Smithwick. He used all, he mentioned all these things. And having given the usual list, the thing that you see day by day in the newspaper, the war between India and Pakistan hadn't broken out at that time, but he would have added that if he was speaking a week ago. But these are the things you see, and having given you a great list, you say, now, the first great problem, the central question is this, how to reconcile man with man? Well, there's only one answer to give with it. That is not the first question. And a man who thinks it is has got his priorities wrong. That isn't the first thing. That isn't the supreme thing. To say that is to put the second commandment before the first. Here's our Lord's answer. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. The second is like unto it. And the second is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But you don't start with the second. If you do, a man who starts with the second is a man who's got his priorities wrong. He's putting the second in the place of the first, and he's all wrong. This is the first. But isn't this the whole trouble with the world tonight? That it starts always with men. The supreme problem is how to reconcile man with man. And they start there and they end there. And it ends in disaster and in failure. But you see, it's a question of priorities, this. Now there's one way in which they do this. Secondly, man not only uh, falls into the error of starting with men instead of with God. He deliberately refuses this biblical order. He rejects this. I told you that the men whom I quoted, he did so. He made disparaging remarks about that old evangelical gospel. It's the thing that's always said about it, of course. Ah, they say, you people, you're always interested in personal salvation. Your relationship to God, your little soul and God. What about Vietnam? What about South Africa? What about this problem here and there? Huh? No, no, my friends. It's wrong. You see, they attack this order that is given here. And they don't hesitate to say that they're not interested in this question of salvation. They're practical men. And they want to know how to reconcile men with men. They want to banish war. How can you stop Vietnam? How can you stop fighting between Pakistanis and Indians? How can you solve this color problem? Here they say, this is the great question. And we're not interested in your theology. Now let me give you another quotation. 
I remember a few years ago reading the account of some religious conference that was being held in the city of Glasgow. And as is the custom on such occasions, they had given an invitation to the Lord Provost to be present. And he had been present and had graced the occasion. And he had delivered an address. And this is what he said. Now he said, I'm a plain, simple man. I haven't got time, he said, to read theology. And I'm not interested in theology, the thing that occupies you people met here in conference. He says, I'm not interested in your doctrines and in your dogmas and all your theology. What I want to know is this. Can you help me to love my fellow men? Perfect instance again, you see. He not only makes the mistake of putting the second first, he tells us quite plainly that he's not interested in the first. You see, he's a man who wants to get on with it. You can't be arguing theology and talking about this personal salvation while there's a war in Vietnam or while there's a color problem in America or Africa or in London. No, no, you see, they said, this is no good. We haven't got the time. We must get men reconciled with men. I want to know how can I love my, my neighbor. That's what I want to know. I'm not interested in their theology. And he's giving a blank denial to and contradiction of our blessed Lord's teaching. The first is this, not love thy neighbor as thyself, but love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. Isn't this the trouble? This gospel is scoffed at and derided and dismissed. They say that it's irrelevant and therefore unimportant, not worthy of their consideration. Fancy people, they say, concerned about their own individual souls with the world as it is tonight. Why don't they get up and put the world right and reconcile man to man? They say that's what's needed, not this theology and this relationship to God and the person of Christ. Ah, oh, they say we can't understand this. We are simple, plain people. We are practical people. We want to do things. We want to get solutions. And therefore what we want to know is how can I love my neighbor? How can men be reconciled with men? The world doesn't change, does it? It's still a question of priorities, my friends. Or let me show you a third way in which this uh, fatal blunder with regard to priorities manifests itself. And here we come perhaps a little more close to those who are specifically religious. It is the error of putting the application of the gospel in the first place, instead of making quite certain as to what the gospel is. You see, this is another way of putting this same point. The gospel is regarded as just a way of life. People say we're not interested in salvation, but we are interested in living. That's the argument. We want to know how to get on with our fellow men and women. We want to know how to deal with these problems. Now, that's what we are after. We are not interested in your old salvation. None of that business for us, practical men of the world. So they say, now, if your gospel can tell us and teach us how to love one another and how to get on with one another, we are interested in it. We are prepared to listen to it and we are prepared to put it into practice. But you see, that's quite fatal. Fatal for this reason. This is a great heresy. To expect Christian conduct and behavior from people who are not Christian is sheer lunacy. It's impossible. It can't be done. But that's what's being done today. Now, in the matter of science or any realm of learning, as I said just now, in introducing this matter, people of common sense and of learning are quite agreed about the importance of priorities. If you're studying uh, geometry, where do you start? Well, you don't start by trying to solve some great problem. No, no, you start away with your axiom. 
with your fundamental postulates and definitions. You've got to have certain fixed points and principles. And it is only as you start from there that you can go on and solve your problem. You have to waste a lot of time, apparently, don't you, in learning these preliminary things. But you'll never solve your really difficult problem unless you're right about these first principle priorities. In the same way, of course, many people have wanted to play a piano perfectly and they want to start with Beethoven, but it can't be done. You've got to play your finger exercises. And it's wearisome, I know, but it's a question of priorities, my dear friend. And so it is, I say, in every study or interest or uh, realm of life. But here, when you come to this, people throw all that overboard. We're not interested, they say, in your rebirth. We're not interested in your salvation and Christ dying on a cross in order to reconcile. We're not interested in that, really. They say the world is in too terrible a state to be bothered with that kind of thing. What we want to know is how can men be reconciled to men? That's what we want to know. Give us that teaching and we'll put it into practice. You see, they're putting the application before the gospel. They're expecting Christian conduct and behavior without knowing what a Christian is. Isn't this a question of priorities? Surely this is a question of first principles. We're concerned, my dear friends, with sheer definition. And now I'm saying, and this is my whole argument this evening, that the world is as it is tonight for this simple reason, that mankind has got its priorities all wrong. It's putting this, that, and the other in the first position. They have their different views as the scribes argued amongst themselves as to which is first. But the point is they're all wrong. They're all putting something that isn't first into the first position, into the prior position. And of course the world as it is tonight is proving this before our very eyes. Whatever charge may be brought against the modern men and the modern world... They can never be charged with not having tried. The world has never been so busy in trying to put itself right. But all the efforts come to nothing. Isn't it time that mankind woke up and came to Christ and said, which is first? We're ready to listen. We're ready to submit. And my appeal tonight is to everyone listening to me to do this very thing. Now I'm not only concerned about the larger issues. I'm concerned about your personal life in exactly the same way. Is your life in trouble? Is your life in a mess? Did you come into this service because in some shape or form you're unhappy and cast down and feel that you're in a muddle and don't quite know where you are? You've been trying to put yourself right and you've read books and you've attended cults and done various other things and you've come here. Well, my dear friends, the same answer has to be given to you. Whether it's personal or whether it's in the larger sphere, the answer is still the same. Nothing matters except priorities. If you don't start with the first question, you can't possibly arrive at the true and the right solution and answer to the problem. Very well then, I say, the world is demonstrating tonight that man has got his priorities wrong. But I don't want to leave that merely as a blunt assertion. In that way, I want to prove it to you. I want to prove that what our Lord says is right. I'm here to show you that the Bible alone is the answer to the problems of men, whether individual or collective. I want to show you that the world, therefore in the second place, must be as it is because it has got its priorities wrong. I'm not merely saying that it is as it is because it's got its priorities wrong. I'm going to prove to you that it must be wrong 
must be as it is because they're wrong, and always will be as it is until he gets its priorities right. Let me show you this. Why must this inevitably lead to the modern confusion? Well, here are some of the answers. The first thing, of course, and this is a, in many ways the problem and the tragedy of the modern world. There is no authority. There is no standard. Somebody said not long ago, a great thinker, he said this, the modern society, he said, is a fatherless society. He meant that there was no recognized authority. There was no head. There was no one to whom you can turn. There was no one to, to exercise discipline. A fatherless society. And that is the trouble. There's no authority. There's no ultimate standard. Everything today is in terms of man's opinion. What a man thinks. And one thinks this, another thinks that. And one has as much right to his thought and to his opinion as the other has. And you've got this multiplicity of opinions, and there's no authority, there's no standard. It's exactly as it was in Israel at one time. There was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own sight. And it was one of the most chaotic periods in the whole history of the children of Israel. No king, no authority, nothing to look to. There's no ultimate standard, indeed. The term, there's one word that describes the modern mentality, the modern outlook, relativity. Everything is relative. There is nothing, nothing standard, they say, there's nothing absolute. God has been dethroned. Man's opinion, even on God, man's opinion on everything, this is the standard. But you see, it's relative. And because of that, in a sense, it is always something that is subject to change. And this is the thing the modern man seems to delight in. He says, of course, people believed so and so at one time, and with their knowledge and their light, it's the only thing they could believe. But by today, of course, we know. We've got so much more knowledge, we know they were wrong. And this is what we believe. Yes, but remember, you've got to follow that argument on. It is equally certain that in 20 or 30 years' time, the people then in control will say that we were wrong. Of course, they say poor things. They couldn't say anything else at their time. That's all they knew. But now, we know. So we must be wrong. Everybody's wrong. And they'll be wrong. And all will be wrong. It's relative. It's a sliding scale. You've never got any standard. That's why the world is as it is. Is there such a thing as right and wrong? Is there any meaning to the category of morality? Are you right in saying a thing is immoral or amoral? Are there any standards in any respect? Now, this is the whole tragedy of the modern world. You see, its fundamental postulate and priority isn't there at all. It always starts with men, so there's no God, there's no authority. Well, let me work that out in terms of what I've just said. The trouble is that it places men at the center of the universe. Man is the center. Man is supreme. Man is the one who decides about everything. That is called humanism. And the world is making a great fuss about it. I believe they're going to give an opportunity to such people to speak on the television next month. Humanism. This is the thing. Man. Believing in man. Man's opinions. Man. Going to put the world right. Man. Humanism. Belief in man. So it puts men at the very center of the universe. But you see, as I'm going to show you, that violates the very structure of the universe. It violates the very law of the universe. 
It violates even the very being of man himself. Man is not big enough to be the center of the universe, and he's showing that. Man can't run this world. He can't even run himself. Look at the mess he makes of it all. And yet, you see, philosophically and in his thought, he puts himself at the center of the universe. And because he does so, the world is as it is. But I want to show you this in particular in this way. Because man has got his priorities wrong, because he puts the second commandment before the first, he has an entirely false view of himself. Now this is a most extraordinary thing, but it's very true, and I can prove to you that it is true. You see, the modern man comes and says, now what I'm interested in is this. I'm not interested in a theology, but what I do want to know is, how can I love my neighbor? How can men be reconciled to men? How can I be reconciled to my neighbor? Well, now, what we are told here is this, you see, that if men gets these priorities wrong, he will inevitably have a wrong view even of himself. Here's the problem. I and you. Why are you and I quarreling? Why don't you and I love one another? That's the question. Well, now, I say the answer is this. Because of this wrong thinking, because of putting the second in the place of the first, my view of I is wrong, and my view of you is wrong. Let me show what I mean. What is the modern man's view of man, of himself? Well, this is the belief, isn't it, that man is what is called autonomous, which means this, that man is his own judge that man is his own authority, that man decides what is right and what is wrong. Nothing outside man is recognized. No God, no supernatural, no miraculous. Man is self-governing, self-existent and subsistent. He is autonomous. He is a unit in himself. And he is able to decide all things. That's the fundamental starting point. And then, of course, they go on to say that man also has this great understanding. Why, they say, you surely can't dispute that. Look at the amazing achievement of science. Isn't this proof of man's understanding? Man who can talk about millions of light years. Man who can talk about the stars and the universe in the way that modern men can. Oh, what understanding, what insight, what knowledge. How marvelous it is. Man is really infinite in understanding. How glorious he is in his apprehension. He's really like a god. Isn't that the view? That man is able to understand all the great problems and everything connected with life. This is a part of the view. And then it is believed that he's able to do all things. Why not? Nothing is impossible to man if he only believes in himself. Believe in yourself, says the modern popular psychology. Trust yourself. Don't listen to that old biblical teaching about sin and about unworthiness. It'll make you grovel in the dust. It was the opium and the dope of the people. It kept people in slavery. Believe in yourself. Stand on your feet. Be a man. Show that you're grown up. Show that you belong to the 20th century. What is impossible to man? Nothing is impossible to man. Man has it in him to spend the universe. He can conquer every realm of reality. Man, great man, 20th century man at the height of his magnificent achievement. Isn't that it? That's his view of himself. He's always praising himself. The newspapers are full of this. They're always praising men. And, of course, as the result of all this, men is always right. 
I mean by that that I'm always right. Of course I am. I can't be wrong. I live with myself, and I couldn't live with myself unless I believed I was always right. And so man is proud. He's self-conscious. He's self-satisfied. And not only that, of course, he's uh, assertive. And he is uh, greedy. And he is jealous and envious. But you see, he doesn't recognize all this. Man says that he is all right and he's capable. He doesn't want your old gospel, which tells you you need to be saved, you need to be born again, that you're a miserable sinner. Not at all. I'm a man, he says, and I've got a brain. I can think, I can reason. And as if I apply my mind to the problem and put my will and my back into it, and if only I can persuade people to join with me, we'll put the world right. We'll solve all the problems. We'll reconcile man to man. That's the argument, the capacity and the power of men. Now, I'm putting it to you that our troubles are due to that, that man has got an entirely false view of himself. And then, of course, I must add hurriedly to that, that he has an equally false view of his neighbor. Isn't this the whole trouble? I think that my neighbor is different. The trouble is always with my neighbor. It's Pakistan. No, it's says Pakistan, it's India. But India says it's Pakistan. That's always the trouble, isn't it? I'm right, you're wrong. Now, there must be something wrong somewhere, mustn't there? Is my neighbor so different from me? Have I alone understanding and knowledge and insight? Have I alone integrity? Am I alone right and am I always right? And is everybody else always wrong? But isn't that the view? You see, that's been the trouble in the world throughout the whole of history. I'm right, he is wrong. I'm somebody, he's nobody. Jews and Greeks. <laughs> Read your New Testament. How the Jew despised the Greek, the barbarian. He divided his world into Greek and barbarian, into, into Jew and Gentile. The Jew was right and the Gentile was all wrong. But then, of course, the Greeks, you see, they had their division. The Greeks, the sophists, the intelligent, philosophically minded people, and the barbarians, the ignoramuses, Wise, unwise. You see, the world has always been doing this, and that's why the world has always been what it has been and what it still is tonight. Where do wars come from? Why is there ever a personal quarrel between two people? Why are there family quarrels? Why are there quarrels in different sections of the community? What's the matter with capital and labor or employers and workmen? What's the matter as between the manager's organization and the trade union? What's the trouble? Why? Well, it's always this, isn't it? I'm right, he's wrong. No, no, says the other. I'm right, he's wrong. Here it is. We've got wrong view of ourselves and an equally wrong view of our neighbors. And that is why, you see, the world is in this present predicament and trouble. And it's all a matter of priorities. Why have we got this false view of ourselves? Why are we already always ready to defend ourselves and to prove that we are right? And to prove the others wrong? And why does he always do the same? You know, my friends, there's only one answer. It's a question of priorities. We've got our priorities wrong. Our view of ourselves is wrong. Our view of others is wrong. The fact is we're all alike. We're all one. And it's because we all are alike and they're all the same that the world is as it is. That's where your wars come from in any shape or form. Let me put this then in the form of my last principle. 
There is only one way whereby men can ever be reconciled to men. Only one. It is, I say, by getting your priorities right. You can multiply your institutions and your organizations. You'll never get peace amongst men until mankind comes and puts its priorities right. What is it? Not to start with your neighbor, but to start with God, which is the first and the greatest commandment of all. And it isn't a tithing of Minton Rue and Ennison coming. It isn't just dealing with this problem or that problem or all the various nostrums that are being offered. What is it? Oh, there's only one thing and it's the message that runs through the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. Every one of us individually has got to start by facing God and by listening to what he has told us about himself and about ourselves and supremely and especially in his only begotten dearly beloved Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the only way home, my friends. It may seem to you a roundabout way. It's the only way. You cannot get right with your neighbor until you're right with God. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The second is like unto it, but it's only second. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Very well, then, we've all got to start with this first fundamental question. Oh, how often have I said this from this pulpit in some shape or form? If you and I want to understand the problem of Vietnam tonight, if you want to understand the problem of South Africa and all these other things that are so constantly being discussed, you know the way to do so. It's to start with yourself. And once you've understood yourself, you'll understand all these things. What's a country? It's a collection of individuals. Why does a country do such and such a thing? It's because as individuals we do such things. That's the whole trouble. You just start with yourself. Was it G.K. Chesterton who once said that if you wanted to understand the universe, the way to do so is not to take a cook's tour and travel round it. He said, I think it was to study a cabbage in your garden. Well, there's a profound truth in that. You needn't travel all round the world and Read the experts on these problems. It's unnecessary. You start with yourself and you'll soon understand every single one of these great questions and problems. It always comes back to this. The individual face to face with God. This is the first commandment of all. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. What's he mean? Well, I'll summarize it for you. It means this. Man is a creature. Man's not the creator. Man's not the center of the universe. Man is a created being. He's been placed in a world bigger than himself. He's a creature, and he's under God. And all our troubles really emanate from the fact that we don't realize that and don't know it. But it's the truth. Man is a small and a finite being. Oh, how small he is. He talks big, but oh, how small he is in this vast universe. 
And how ignorant he is. Do you know yourself? Does men really know and understand men? He doesn't. He can make these great discoveries, but oh, his ignorance, ignorance of these fundamental things. I read, I think it was on my holidays, not this year, but last year, a most interesting book, uh, which uh, dealt with the whole question of uh, creation, as it were, not biblically, but this whole art of creation. And I was astounded there to find this man demonstrating a thing that I'd never thought of before. He pointed out and was able to prove it, that nobody can understand a laugh. Have you ever thought of that? Now, you see, you can split the atom, can't you? And you can do wonders. Do you know why you laugh? What makes a man laugh? What is laughter? Nobody can answer that question. And here, you see, I could give you many other illustrations. These fundamental questions, the things that make life, the things that are vital in this whole matter of our personal relationships and reconciling men with men. Oh, how terribly ignorant we are at that most vital point. Man is a small creature, he's a finite being, and he's an ignorant being, and he's a dependent being. Now, of course, a man who sees things properly, he sees this. Take the eighth psalm. Oh, says that man, when I consider the heavens and the works of thy fingers, the sun and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man? What a little creature he is. How small he is in this vast universe, traveling through it, not understanding it, subject to forces that he can't harness. Man, the moment you face God, you begin to realize that you're but a creature. You're not the center of the universe. Everything doesn't revolve round about you. All the planets, all the cosmos is centered round that ultimate being, God. The Lord, you are God. And the moment you face him, you realize your creature, your creaturely character. But not only that. You realize what a failure you are. How well you haven't loved God. You were made in order to do so. The chief end of men is to glorify God. And man is meant to love the Lord his God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength. But we haven't done so. We are failures, miserable failures. Here we are in this great universe and it's made by God and he's over all. And by nature we're ignorant of him and we don't know him and we don't love him. Oh, what failure. With this possibility of communing with God and having fellowship with him and knowing him and enjoying him. We don't, we haven't. Oh, what wretched failures we are. And we've not only failed to love God, we don't love our neighbors. That's the very problem we are discussing. How to reconcile men with men. It's no use boasting about these wonderful scientific achievements if man can't live with his neighbor. If man is fighting his own neighbor, his own brother, he's a dismal, disastrous failure, and that's what he is. The world is proving it. And our failure to live a righteous and a just and a true and a clean and a holy life according to God's holy law. Are you proud of society? Are you proud of the nightlife of London? Are you proud of these robberies by violence and theft and divorces and all that's going on? Is this something to be proud of? It's the failure of man, my dear friends. And a terrible failure it is. Man behaving like a beast and worse. 
The moment you face God, you begin to realize this. You're getting a true view of yourself, you see. You've got to stop there. There'll be no peace between men and men if I've got an inflated and a wrong and a false view of myself. I've got to realize my failure and then I realize further that I'm guilty. My conscience tells me that, but I try to silence it. But the moment I face God, I've got to listen to my conscience. I know that my conscience is speaking the truth. And when I come to this point, I know that I'm a wretched failure. And I'm afraid to die. And I'm troubled by thoughts of that country from whose born no traveler returns. This is the thing that paralyzes me. And I'm unhappy. This is man. He's an unhappy creature in this great universe. And he doesn't know where he is nor what to do with himself. And then you go on looking at God. And you realize how helpless you are. And oh, how helpless man is by nature. Tell me, can you change yourself? Can you change yourself? Can you get rid of that temper? Can you get rid of that awkwardness? Can you get rid of your hatred and jealousy and spite and envy and malice? Can a man change himself and give himself a new nature? What hope is there of reconciling men to men until men have new natures? That's our trouble. You see, I'm right, he's wrong. Well, what's the trouble? Well, we're both wrong. And we both, therefore, must have terrible natures that ever makes us think we are right and that the other one is wrong. Man is completely helpless. He cannot change himself. He's been trying to. And he's put great assiduity into this education, culture, development of all these resources. But a man cannot change man. You can make him highly educated. It doesn't mean he's going to be a saint. It doesn't mean he's not going to be a drunkard. It doesn't mean he's not going to be an adulterer. No, no. You can't change men. It can't be done. A wise man says it in the Old Testament. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. And the modern world is proving this. But man can't only change, can, can, can not only not change himself, he can't find God. And he can't love God. He can't love his neighbor. Man is completely helpless. And if only mankind could see this tonight, that the very story of the world and these political conferences that are taking place this time of the year, this year as they always do, and they suggest this and they suggest that and they'll attack one another, the point is they're all the same, every one of them, animated by the same motives, arguing like the scribes and the Pharisees about mint and rue and anise and cumin and missing the... The great central thing of the law. The love of God and true righteousness. The problem of mankind is not political. It's spiritual. It is man's relationship to God. And here he is in his utter helplessness. Change your government, it won't change the conditions. Because it doesn't change man. And man is helpless. He can do nothing. And he cannot escape the wrath that is there over his head. And you know when a man sees that, and he only sees it face to face with God, he's humbled to the dust. He is humiliated. He sees that he's a pathetic object, that he's striding about the world as if he was some great one, but he's not only small and finite and ignorant, but he's vile, he's foul. Nothing good dwells within him. He's rotten at the center. And all his troubles are due to this central rottenness. And he discovers this not only to be true about himself. He discovers that it's equally true of his neighbor. It is true of all men. 
All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Indians, Pakistanis, English, Welsh, Irish, Americans, don't care what they are, they're all the same. We're all sinners, we're all failures, we're all self-centered, we're all selfish and jealous, we're vile, we're all rotten, all of us. But nothing ever brings them in to see that, except that he starts with God. But the moment he stands in the clear light of God and his holy law, that is what he discovers about himself. And there he is groveling in the dust, and his neighbor is there groveling by his side. Can't you see, my dear friends, how this question of priorities is all important? How it alone can solve this question? We all need to be humbled. And we all need to be saved. What's the great need in the world tonight? Well, the first great need is this. Having seen ourselves as we are, in the light of God and his holy law, we all realize our first need is forgiveness. And then we need a new nature, a new heart, a new outlook, a new understanding. We need new strength, new power. We need to be completely changed. We can't do it. But you know, this is the whole message of the Bible. It's the central message of the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for people like us. God has sent his son into this world and to the cross on Calvary's hill in order that the real cause of our trouble should be put right, we need to be reconciled to God. We need God's blessing. The world is as it is because it's living outside God, and God has handed it over to a reprobate mind. He's allowing it to stew in its own vileness. The clever modern world that says it can get on without him, God is saying, get on then, get on then. And that's what he's saying tonight, get on, get on without me. And this is the world that you're making for yourselves as you're trying to get on without me. No, no. Man needs to be reconciled to God. He needs forgiveness. He needs this new start, this new life, this new nature, this new outlook, this new strength. And blessed be the name of God, it is the thing that is offered us. The speaker here answering the scribe is none other than the very Son of God. What's he doing in this world? Why has he come here? Has he come here because we are so good? No, he's come because we are so bad. Has he come to praise us? No, he's come to save us. Why has he come? Why did he go to the cross especially? There's only one reason. He died that we might be forgiven. He was innocent. He was pure. He gave himself for us. The innocent for the guilty. The pure for the vile. The son of God for fallen men. He's taken all our troubles upon him. He came to reconcile man first to God. And then, and only then, to reconcile men to men. The first and the greatest commandment is 
shall love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You see, my friend, you'll never be able to do the second until you're right on the first. And there is only one way to be right on the first. It is to realize your utter, your absolute, your complete failure and your entire hopelessness. And then it is to see and to believe that Christ, the Son of God, died that you might be reconciled to God, that you might become a child of God, a son of God, you might have a new nature, you might be born again, you might start living in a new way. It might be said of you, if a man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Indian sees the Pakistani in a different way. And I see my neighbor in a different way. I've got to see myself as I am. I've got to see him as he is. I've got to be sorry for myself and him. I've got to see that I need this act of God, that he needs it. My whole attitude is revolutionized. For the first time in my life, I'm sorry for my neighbor. I'm sorry for him. And I long that he may have what I have had. I long that he may have this new nature that can make him love me instead of hating me, as now I love him instead of hating him. And you see, I'm given the most glorious and the most wonderful motive of all, and it's this. My neighbor sins against me, and my instinct is to say, like the men in the parable in Matthew 20, that I, Matthew 18, that I read to you at the beginning. You remember the men? He'd committed, he owed his master, his king, a certain amount of money, and it was an enormous sum of money. And the master said, well, very well, you've got to be punished. I'm going to throw you into prison until you've paid me the uttermost farthing. The man went on his knees and he pleaded with him and he said, oh, master, give me time. Be reasonable. Be merciful. Give me time and I'll pay you every farthing. Very well, said the king. I'll do that. You seem to be a decent fellow. He let him go and gave him an opportunity. The moment the man went out, one of his own underservants was brought to him, owed him just a hundred pence, a mere trifle, something hardly worth mentioning, especially by contrast with what he owed his master. And he took him by the throat. He said, you've got to pay me every farthing. And the man went on his knees. He pleaded, oh, have mercy. Give me time and I'll pay you every... Not a bit of it, he said. Throw him into prison. I must have every farthing. And do you remember our Lord's comment on that? Now this is how I'm using this. There is only one thing that will enable a man to forgive his neighbor. And that is to know that he has been forgiven. When nature, the natural man, rises up and says, I'm entitled to this. I must have the uttermost father. He's wrong. I'm right. I, he owes me this. I must have it. The moment he says it, a voice speaks within him. Who are you to say that? Consider what he owes you. Then do you remember what you owed him? He freely forgave you all. May God bring us all, if we haven't done so already, to see this great priority. And having seen it, to admit our utter, abject, complete failure. And then submit ourselves to the Son of God, who died to solve our problem and to reconcile us to God, and to make it possible for us to love our neighbor. Amen.